Hello, and welcome again to the Radio Gaga podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and today we are talking about indie pop band Vampire Weekend and their third studio album, Modern Vampires of the City. Got a little soul, the world is a cold, cold place to be. Want a little patience over the last few weeks. I know it's been a minute since you heard from me. There have been a lot of things happening that have taken me away from devoting the time I need to to each of these episodes, but for the most part, they're all good things. For one, I just got promoted at work, and I'm now working on a really big account, so ramping up on that has taken more out of my time than usual. And last weekend, I helped celebrate one of my best friends in the world who is getting married this fall. We did a little socially distant bachelorette weekend, and it was so much fun. Anyway, I think I just needed that break to handle some stuff, and I appreciate your patience. Let's jump right into Vampire Weekend. My main sources for today's episode include NPR, the Ezra Koenig interview for Radio X, and Pitchfork, Stereo Gum, and GQ. And a big thank you to today's guest, who you know if you listen to the LCD Sound System episode. Jerry Bell is back, and I could not be more excited. Vampire Weekend is his favorite band, and he was the perfect person to talk to about them. Before I talked to Jerry about Vampire Weekend, I didn't really have much to say about the band. Nothing terribly bad or good, just neutral, slash didn't really care. I had heard Oxford Comma and their other more popular songs, but nothing beyond that. They seemed kind of preppy to me, not really up my alley, and I just didn't care to listen more. But I think with a lot of bands like that where I'm just meh, it's good to talk about that with someone who's a really big fan. Not that I need to be convinced, but if I hadn't had this conversation with Jerry or had requests for this episode, I'd never dive into Vampire Weekend on my own or even give them a chance. It's been an opportunity for me to revisit and have a second look at the band, like a movie you see more than once and you start noticing things you didn't before. To be honest with you, I learned a ton, but I feel about the same as I did before all of this. Not a huge fan, not a hater. Those of you who have listened here for a while know that while most of my episodes are about albums that I'm excited and inspired by, it's not all of them. We can't always be sunshine and rainbows around here. But don't let my neutrality deter you from enjoying this episode. I can understand how this band would be incredibly inspiring and exciting for a lot of people. Big Vampire Weekend fans will find a kindred soul in Jerry, who helps provide a ton of insight and background where I can't. You had mentioned that Vampire Weekend was your favorite band. Um, <laughs> yeah. How long have they been your favorite band and, and what qualifies them? It's funny. I, I don't, I've never thought of myself as someone who has a favorite band, right? I think that's like pretty common. Like how can, how can you pick? But I think, I think it was with their most recent album that, and it wasn't because I liked the most recent album so much, but it was kind of this realization that kind of this realization that, that you had this band that has basically kind of reinvented itself a few times while also kind of keeping these like consistent threads that I really like that, you know, they're super, they're super referential with kind of their lyrics. They're, they really like blend a lot of different genres um, and different kind of like cultural touch points. 
everything from like hip hop to ska to kind of like jam band and, and kind of like folk rock with their most country of the most recent album. And then just the kind of like more sentimental stuff, you know, they, I think there's something about a band whose, whose music kind of like hits you at a certain point in life, right? Like the, the, their first albums, which are very kind of fun and playful and, and really kind of irreverent, you know, came out when I was in high school and college. And then their third album, which was certainly like darker and deals with a lot more kind of like heavier themes of growing up and religion and like all these different things, like hit me like as I was kind of, you know, getting older, coming out of relationships and like all these things. And then the most recent album, which is, you know, basically hit me like right as I was, you know, refinding my my love of, of like jam music, which is like hilarious that those things like both happened at the same time. So I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like actually pretty comfortable saying like a band that I have like really liked for a long time, like very comfortable saying like, yes, this is absolutely my favorite band. One thing I did know about Vampire Weekend was their roots in New York City, similar to another band Jerry and I have talked about on this podcast before. These guys came out just a couple years after LCD Sound System formed, but for some reason, and maybe this is in my imagination, but they feel like a different generation of New York totally. City bands. Do you have any idea why, like, why it feels like that? I think when you're dealing with these bands like LCD Sound System, The Strokes, um, Interpol, like kind of like all of these kind of like downtown Manhattan bands the grungier kind of like darker period of the end of the century in New York city. I think you really have to like, kind of like think about what, what bands these guys were kind of like interpolating what, who they were like referencing when you think of kind of velvet underground and, and kind of the more like obscure electronic and house music and new wave that like James Murphy, for instance, was referencing when he was coming up with LCD sound system. And I think with a band like vampire weekend, there's like a pretty, pretty stark generational divide because bands like Vampire Weekend, who didn't seem to come on the scene that much later, were just basically referencing a completely different musical palette. Whether it's referencing people like Paul Simon or referencing more world music, it's it's hard to kind of pinpoint what exactly they're referencing. Because really, what they what they were experiencing was like the ability of using the internet to find new music, as opposed to using kind of like a record store. And is also something you kind of see in this in this third album. It's basically saying the barriers between genre and between kind of like musical references are like are really silly and don't apply to music anymore. And so it, it's 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 a it's hard to even think about Vampire Weekend with, without that that kind of uh, that kind of positioning. I think that's like another another thing that I really love about them is that they could make a concept album and uh, or country concept album and it wouldn't necessarily be surprising because they do kind of like bend genre so effectively that you don't really notice it. The four original members of Vampire Weekend met while studying at Columbia University in New York. It started with Ezra Koenig forming the rap band Lum Run with friends Andrew Kalajian and future Vampire Weekend drummer Chris Thompson. Well, won't it be better than just 
just a minute seconds last for just a distance past the hour faster now we're after our april showers how your long black hair is at home i planted these flowers and just look between 2004 and 2005 kadig also played saxophone on tour for the indie rock band dirty projectors along with rostam batmanglij another founder of vampire weekend Ezra, Rostam, and Chris got together with bassist Chris Bayo and started playing shows around Columbia their senior year. The band name Vampire Weekend was based on an indie film Koenig was making at the time, inspired by The Lost Boys. He says he worked on it for a day or so and then gave up, but one of Vampire Weekend's first songs, Walcott, is based on the film's main character. Koenig told NPR in 2013, Vampire Weekend's songwriting style is free from specific sounds or ideas, designed that way so they can take it to new places with every album. But one constant, and one of the most unique things about this band, is Ezra's voice. When Koenig sings, it sounds very European and accented, nothing like the American accent he really has. I'm personally not a big fan of his vocal style, but I asked Jerry what he thought and he gave me something to think about. I, when I hear Ezra do it, I hear a lot of blood on the tracks Dylan a little bit, like the kind of like intoning words for just for like artistic effect and, and maybe mm-hmm. not like no other reason. I hear some like Elvis Costello a little bit too. So much of his lyrics are so like tightly bound and super, super um, referential and hard to understand. I think it's just an adding weird emphasis and weird consonation is just another way to, to make it like obscure messaging or, or make messaging, make the message of his, of his lyrics, like uh, give them a, like even more mystery or kind of like open them up to even further interpretation. I've heard him in interviews talk about how, how much he obsesses over lyrics and like really tries to write things that to, for the, to kind of blend the, blend things for the broadest possible interpretation while also making them kind of like easy to understand and you know on paper the idea of adding another layer of kind of texture and complexity to the vocal performance as a way of kind of obscuring obscuring the lyrical content or or like giving people like me a, a reason to kind of like dig in further to the lyrical content to see if there are different ways that a, a certain phrase could be read or different ways a certain phrase could be heard based on like where it's kind of emphasized. I think that's like a super, something that pops up a lot on, on kind of all of their work. Graduating with a degree in English from Columbia, Koenig had two paths he was exploring. Clearly, Vampire Weekend was turning into something, but he'd also planned to go into teaching after graduation. So for one school year, he did both. 
For the 2006-2007 school year, Koenig was an 8th grade teacher at Junior High School 258 in Brooklyn. Former student Karan Jones recalls to MTV that he and the other students pranked Mr. Koenig a lot. Gum on his chair, calling him Ashton Kutcher, making fun of his boat shoes and how young he looked. Yet still, Koenig was patient and laid back, forming bonds with some of the students. As the school year went on, he continued to live a double life, teacher by day, rehearsals and gigs by night. He never shared with his students that his band was about to be a massive success at least not until the end of the school year that spring. But by the fall, Mr. Koenig wouldn't return to the classroom, instead officially signing with Vampire Weekend to XL Records and going out on tour with the Shins. XL began in the late 80s to put out 12-inch vinyl singles for rave DJs. Soon after, The Prodigy was signed, then artists including Badly Drawn Boy, M.I.A., and The White Stripes. Adele released her award-winning album 21 on XL, and since signing Vampire Weekend, the label has also signed artists including The XX and Tyler the Creator. Vampire Weekend would go on to stay with XL through Modern Vampires of the City before moving to Sony's Columbia Records in 2018. Vampire Weekend released its self-titled album in 2008. reacted immediately, and while one half of indie music loved everything about Vampire Weekend, the other half had this perceived image of the band as privileged, upper-class Ivy Leaguers in polos and boat shoes. They were dismissed as the whitest band in the world. Rostam Batmanglij is Iranian-American and gay, Koenig is of Hungarian-Jewish descent, and Bayo is Italian and, side note, related to Steve Buscemi. Between them, Vampire Weekend represents a multitude of worldviews and heritages. And they all got into Columbia on scholarship and student loans. Koenig would still be paying his own student loans off by 2009. But to a lot of music media, Vampire Weekend were just privileged, waspy Columbia grads using cultural tourism to their advantage. It was actually kind of funny, like their original critique was always like, oh, these upper crust waspy kids from Columbia, like kind of channeling these these world tones. And there was a lot of talk of like cultural appropriation and, and, and things like that. And, and the pushback was always like, if you just would take a second to kind of like actually look at who's in the band, that would that argument would kind of fall apart.
it's it's always funny to like look at bands whose biggest hit is their first ever single and kind of like see how they like deal with the relationship with that song like for the rest of their career they're not shy they're like yeah we realize that majority of our fans like probably came into vampire weekend through a punk and if they're still sticking if if you can come in through a punk but then you are still around and like resonating with like hannah hunt and then resonating with like harmony hall which is like effectively like a jam band song like mm-hmm. then you're kind of in like you 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 are along for the ride and if you're gonna like lend a band that that amount of like time and, and effort into kind of like understanding what they're saying like that's kind of exactly what you want in a fan and so i think that that's the, the healthiest possible relationship that you can have with like a, a, a first song like biggest song Contra, their second studio album, in 2010. Contra features a photograph of a pretty young woman who apparently the band did not have permission to use the likeness of. It's a photo of model Anne Kirsten Kennis, photographed nearly 30 years ago. Kennis's now teenage daughter saw the album cover on the shelves, recognizing a younger version of her mom, and Kennis immediately filed suit. She sued the band, photographer Todd Brody, and XL Recordings in 2010 for $2 million, alleging that not only did they use the photo without her knowledge, but she claimed someone forged her signature on a release form. They settled in 2011, and Kenneth won an undisclosed amount. But this whole debacle was not entirely Vampire Weekend's fault. The band and XL always claimed to have followed the proper steps to license the photograph from the photographer, Todd Brody. Once the case with Kenneth was settled, Vampire Weekend turned around and sued Brody for misrepresenting his rights to the Contra photograph. Damn if being a musician isn't half making music, half sitting in a courtroom. After the band returned home from their Contra tour, Koenig tells NPR that he began writing their next album, Modern Vampires of the City. But as with any long project or tour or traveling, there's an end to the momentum that usually comes crashing into you when you finally arrive home. Koenig says his conception of time changed when he got home. There was suddenly a ton of free time to become super reflective. Jerry and I dive in a lot on some of the themes Koenig was struggling with that inspired him to write this album. In the, the, the original two albums, they kind of like wrote, the, wrote some of the music as a band. And for, this most, and for the third album, um, they basically only Ezra and Rossum kind of like wrote. It seems like they were the only ones who were kind of like involved in like the, the writing process. And then they brought in a new producer 
um, Ariel Reichscheid, who's also kind of like another like indie producer du jour, but has like some more some more kind of like hip hop R&B influences. He's worked with like Diplo and Usher and um, he was also involved. And it's it's interesting. I, I don't know quite enough about music to kind of like say how that influenced the record, but it certainly feels like that was like a maturation process that was like super necessary for this for this album. So you can definitely like hear a lot of that too. Ariel Rekshide's approach would work so perfectly for Vampire Weekend because he both drew from their knowledge and love of global music while keeping the lyrical storytelling forward. The music is more distinct and dynamic than in the previous two albums. When he's contracted for albums, Rekshide tells LA Weekly that he takes the long view and does his homework, determining the talents and influences that make the artist unique. Then he accentuates those eccentricities in the recordings. When talking about longtime collaborators Hyam, he says, quote, It's my mission to make sure that people can hear their musical training and roots and influences from an early age, end quote. He adopted the same approach with artists like Sky Ferreira, Major Lazer, and Vampire Weekend on Modern Vampires of the City. When I first heard this album, when it came out in 2013, like the lyrical components, like the things that, you know, talking about slight, certainly like darker themes are like what drew me in immediately. And it could have been just because what I was going through in life or like, you never know when, when music hits you, like what, what's going to resonate. But I think the things that like kind of helped me keep coming back to it is like how that album is contextualized by like the other music they've made. Their earlier albums were so kind of like marked by, there were, I think a lot of people have called them like the, one of the first bands of like the internet or like the blogosphere and how basically you couldn't even really listen to Vampire Weekend on the internet without like having the, the the discussion and commentary around them. Like, what do you what do you make of like a preppy band or like are they kind of you know stealing music or or stealing kind of influences from Paul Simon or from African music or world music? It always felt to me like this third album was like such a like planting a flag in the ground and basically saying like like how basically kind of reflective saying like look how dumb all of those arguments were. Like, look how we've grown past that. And, and don't you like kind of feel silly for, for kind of couching our band in that and those like really dumb arguments. Like we always had this in us. You just never really like were paying attention. So that was like one of the things I always like really respected about the band is like the confidence to kind of like say those things. I always kind of felt like they knew that this was going to be their most kind of like critically acclaimed album. A lot of the production decisions that were made how kind of like the serious tones, like it, it always felt like this was going to be their critically acclaimed. I think it got like Pitchfork's, you know, number one album and like all of those things. And in the context of the band, like that basically freed them up to basically say like, yes, we can do that, but we don't have to do that anymore if we don't want to. You can definitely tell by his lyric writing that Ezra used to be an English teacher. He told the Irish Times last year that the band's lyrics have evolved along with the lives of the people in the group. He described Vampire Weekend songs not as nonsense stories, but more as impressionistic collages. It actually makes a ton of sense when you think about it. You can look at a collage and think, hey, that's a pretty cool collage. But the longer and deeper you study it, the more meaning you might find. If I was to kind of sum up what it see, what, I, what I was to guess, kind of like Ezra Koenig's like lyrical perspective is, is that he's kind of trying to write, he's like trying to write The Great Gatsby, right? He's trying to write a book that it is on its surface, an interesting story that anyone can can kind of like tap their toe to and kind of hum along to and, and kind of quote the chorus. But for the the willing 15 to 20 to 40% who want to understand what's what he's saying under, there's also something there. Like and, and like I think that also kind of gets to like why I think this is such an interesting band. It's like he has like 
a huge appreciation for popular music, you know, American popular, popular music going back to like the fifties. And he kind of channels that and channels like the ability to like kind of write pop songs while also kind of desiring to like put something underneath that for people who are looking for it or more likely as a way to kind of like fully express his ideas. Right. And I think that like, it makes a, it makes music like so much just as interesting to listen to the first time as it is the, you know, the 50th time or the hundredth time. Um, and, and the reality is like, I still, even though I've listened to this album, according to Spotify, more, more times than any other album in the 20, in, in between, since uh, 2013, um, I still kind of go back and forth on what I think he's trying to say in a lot of ways, even though I'm like pretty sure of it. I think that there's like some places that are still very much like open to interpretation in a lot of ways. I think he likes it that way, doesn't he? Yeah. And, and, and no, I think he said like, that's, he's like, the, I mean, I don't know. Did we, did we say this last time? Like, it's a, it's an artist. It's a, the media's job to ask you what you mean. And it's an artist's job not to tell them like, he's yeah, very much, much a buyer in that. Yeah. <laughs> right. I love that yeah. quote. <laughs> I, love that I know. Quote. It's so good. <laughs> um, I know, but he like, he totally channels that here. And, and I think that like, I, that definitely kind of goes back to like that, like Dylan sensibility, which I'm assuming most American kind of like singer songwriters are, are, are doing a, some sort of Dylan impersonation, whether they realize it or not. Um, I think he's he's really doing that in a lot of ways. When the band was ready to announce this album, they went about it in the most New York fashion. Fans already knew the letters of the new title, MVOTC. But all it took was one tweet from the band simply saying NYT Classifieds for fans to know exactly where to go. Toward the bottom of the page of the New York Times, the only entry in the column titled Notices Lost and Found were the words Modern Vampires of the City, May 7, 2013. The album title comes from the 1990 song One Blood by reggae artist Junior Reed. Koenig is a fan of this song and found this line somewhat haunting. Modern vampires of the city, anti-blood, blood. Where would you rank this in the in the total discography of, of Vampire Weekend albums? Oh, it's tough. It's really tough. I think I go more like song by song with Vampire Weekend, and it definitely has my favorite Vampire Weekend song, which is Hannah Hunt. Probably the, it's got to be like one of the best breakup songs of all time. If not, you know, it's it's up there with any number of Bob Dylan songs. But I would probably go. Oh, it's tough. I'd say probably one or two. And I would, I would either go, if I go two, I'd probably go behind Contra. So I don't know. It's, it's certainly the Vampire Weekend I might go back to the most. The cover of Modern Vampires of the City is a photograph taken by photojournalist Neil Benzi, a former photographer for the New York Times. He shot this photo from atop the Empire State Building in November 1966, capturing the cloudy effect of the famous smog episode that polluted New York City that Thanksgiving weekend. 
With that, let's jump right into the tracks on Modern Vampires of the City with the opener, Obvious Bicycle. LED still flickers in your eyes All you ought to spare face the razor Because no one's gonna spare time for you No one's gonna watch you as you go From a house you didn't build and can't control Oh, you ought to spare your face the razor Because no one's gonna spare the time for you Obvious Bicycle is, a great, I think, a great open to this album. I remember kind of like thinking of this song as like the opening to the album, like it's very stark compared to their previous their previous work, especially with it like generally opens with this theme of kind of the whole theme of the album of either no one's going to care about you, don't worry, don't or like don't wait. I don't know, like everything you could kind of like flip it on his head and say basically, uh, don't worry about anything. So, you know, like no one's gonna, don't worry about shaving because it doesn't really matter what you do. There's just like so many different interpretations of it. <laughs> he's he's a he's a wordsmith. They're both, yeah. I, and I assume it's mostly Ezra, right? Yeah, they, I think it's, yeah, lyrics are primarily, I think, yeah, lyrics are, are almost exclusively, exclusively Ezra. Yeah. Say. Do you think that he is singing most of these songs from his own perspective? Or do you think he's seen them from someone else's perspective? My guess is that he is, well, I think, I don't know. I would say if you were to ask him, he would probably say they're not from his perspective, but they are speaking to themes that he's interacting with this in his life and that are themes that like broader things that he's interacting with. They're written to be kind of assumed that they're from any perspective, really. Would be my pers- would be my perspective. Yeah, well, it's easier <laughs> it's easier for you to place yourself in a photo where you can't see the person's face, right? <laughs> right, exactly. So listen so listen Don't Radio X that the lyrics to Unbelievers came really quickly. Rostam came up with the organ part and it felt to him like a folk song. Koenig says he typically likes to pour over word choice, but for some reason he was able to come up with every lyric right there in the room. I, I guess the, the way I kind of think about religion on this album is like like all good themes, it's it's kind of a use to analyze like any used to, to contextualize and analyze the rest of the content, right? Like so dying unbelievers, like I think you can kind of think about that as a, a little bit of like kind of millennial like fatalism in some sense of 
what's the point? It's not worth it. We're all gonna die, you know, die unbelievers basically. Is this the fate that half of the world is planned for me? I know I love you. was inspired by the 1998 song Step to My Girl by Souls of Mischief, both musically and lyrically. You can hear how the saxophone sample is mirrored in the Vampire Weekend song. The song Step, which is, is kind of like probably like the thesis statement of Vampire Weekend, like as a band, is really kind of like a nod to super deep kind of like musical references and basically saying that you can't, these things are for everyone, you can't protect any of these and there's, it's not really up to anyone who who is uh, responsible like for saying who can and can't reference music and, and like, especially in, in the 21st century. Basically taking kind of like all of these references, taking kind of like all the, the millennial brain, which is basically filled with like ephemera references to like Angor Wat and built on top of like a Souls of Mischief song, like all of these sparse, disparate like pieces of, of knowledge or, or kind of references and like turning them into something that is truly like kind of like universally known and universally like meaningful. I like to assume that's like kind of like what the purpose of this was and, and kind of couching that whole thing within the, couching that kind of like whole perspective with like using kind of like music as, as the kind of vehicle there. Um, like we were talking about earlier, like they were, you know, criticized for appropriation or kind of like um, genre bending, like all these things that were were critiques of the band earlier on. And this song kind of feels like, like a bit of like a slam, like a just basically dunking on the heads of like a lot of critics who basically said, not only do we like know more about all of the music than you are, you think that we're trying to steal, like you never, you were never able to protect it in the first place. And like that, like those arguments were, were stupid at the time and they're even stupider now. 
Um, it's like kind of like has always felt like what that like they needed to basically write this song before they could kind of like you know move forward as a band. Young took a long time to crack in the studio. Koenig says he felt kind of perpetually dissatisfied and it almost didn't make it onto the album. For the first chorus, I was already singing baby, 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 you know. And then um, Ariel, who also worked, Ariel Rekshad also worked on the record, he was like, okay, why don't we try something with the vocal? And we'd, maybe we tried pitching it down and I was just like, that's lame. And he just did this much smaller thing, which is to use a formant shifter, which is basically, it, it's a, it's not just changing the pitch, it's like literally changing kind of like the, the quality of, of your voice and he kind of did it in this way that would kind of go down and up and then it was like this small thing but that only happens once in the song but I was, you know, sometimes that's, that's what, how it works, like you know there's something good about a song but you need that one little thing to feel like comfortable with it and that's the, that was like the final nail in the coffin where I was like, alright, cool. Koenig tells NPR that because this song is about the pros and cons of dying young versus living a long time, that the formant shifting he mentioned created this juxtaposition between a baby voice going down into an old man voice. I got a lot of more of the overt themes were religion, like you said. Yeah. And I noticed a lot of references to dying at a young age. Mm -hmm. And that dying young being a very obvious topic of the song Diane Young. <laughs> uh, I, as far as I, you know, as, as I can tell, uh, I feel like that's, you know, that's who that is. Diane Young is, I don't think she's a real person. I think it's just about- It's actually, um, it's actually a hair salon. Diane Young is okay. Yeah, <laughs> is it um, is that in Brooklyn? You no, know, it's it's like all over New York. It's like a chain salon, or you can get like it's like a hair dye salon scenario. Okay, um, all right. Yeah, but I like I I would say that I wouldn't say dying young is necessarily the theme. Is more it's just like general like time acknowledgement, thinking about like growing older, for instance, 
I mean, that's like such a universal theme in, in all music, especially kind of music by, um, so that's a, it seems like a very common like third album theme, right? For a band <laughs> is to, to talk about like growing older. Okay, we um, had fun on the first two, but yeah, now exactly. We're all, yeah, now we're all in our thirties and let's, you know, let's. Yeah. I mean, the song, the song Don't Lie, which is the, the track right after Diane Young is like, the chorus is all about kind of like a ticking clock and there's like a lifetime in front of you and like all these things. Like it's, it is really interesting I, to me. I, I find the like time stuff way more interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. I find the time stuff way more accessible. And I like, feel like I have a pretty good sense of like what he's kind of talking about when it comes to time and how, in the context of the first couple albums, it's very easy to see like why thinking about time and especially considering how much of a break they took, right? You know, they took a basically a six year break after this album came out. The idea of kind of slowing down and appreciating the passage of time makes perfect sense. The religion thing is like super interesting to me and I can't quite put my finger on like what I think about the whole, the like religious overtones other than just the like general like existential questions that most religions deal with. I don't. I guess I don't consider this to be like overtly like Christian music or overtly like kind of gospel, you know, gospel music. But I do think of it as kind of acknowledging the the larger questions that are asked by or are tempted to be answered by like most religions. I mean, I kind of I feel like that's like kind of what they're they're like kind of angling towards with the with um, religion because it's certainly. There's certainly more questions asked than questions answered and when it comes to religion. Young Turks, young Saturday nights Young hips shouldn't break on the Ezra and Rostam record their parts first, then bring in Chris and Chris on bass and drums and record them to analog tape. Sometimes they'd have to re-record parts of the songs after bass and drums were recorded, but many of those original recordings stayed. Like in this song, Don't Lie. There's acoustic guitars in this song that Rostam recorded in a little cottage in Martha's Vineyard way early on that ended up as final in the song. Don't lie, I want to know is Hannah Hunt, which was probably my favorite song on the album, and I know it's Jerry's. A 
clients move but I could not believe it to me and Hannah Hunt saw crawling vines and weeping willows as we made away from Providence to Phoenix it's a it's a song that takes place from the beginning of an in, the beginning of the end of a relationship to the to the end of the end of the relationship if you will so it's kind of like a i guess on paper it's like a cross-country road trip but you know all of the locations that he references have some sort of kind of embedded meaning he references like leaving providence which in the context of the rest of this album which has like a lot of heavy religious religious tones like providence obviously has a deeper religious meaning and then kind of references kind of ending up in Santa Barbara, which also has like a great Gatsby reference, which Ezra Canning as an English teacher is like very heavily leans on things like that. On the US dollar, you and me, we got our own sense of time. One of the lines it's basically Hannah tore the New York Times up into pieces, which is like such like a beautiful double meaning. As you know, he talks about going to get kindling for a fire, and then she rips up the New York Times into pieces, where you know they're coming from the East Coast, and so it could be re referring to a newspaper or referring to their time in New York. It's like it's such a beautiful, like stark, I mean, you know, striking kind of like you know lyrical performance, and then. The song kind of like explodes right after that into like a like a basically kind of like a huge key change which is like super like you said super moving super beautiful um certainly like without question like my favorite vampire weekend song and, and if i'm not mistaken i don't think that song was like released as a single it's just kind of like taken on that kind of like fan favorite you know it's now it's like on even though they changed their set list like pretty heavily now it's pretty much i would would guess it's on over 95% of their, their like live shows. Um, it is like definitely one of their most popular songs despite never being really released as a single. says Hannah Hunt was a long time in the making. He wrote this in college, even before Vampire Weekend was really a thing. He confirms that Hannah Hunt is based on someone he knew, but she pronounced it Hannah. Koenig told her he was writing a song and that he did indeed know how to pronounce her name correctly.
for a band to be playing Saturday Night Live just two years after they formed. But understandably, the band takes issue with the assumption that they were handed this career on a silver platter just because of where they went to school or their backgrounds. Because of the producing talents of Rostam and the hard work put into the music in between gigs and other full-time jobs, Vampire Weekend's first album was basically already done by the time record labels started noticing them. They already had 10 songs completely finished by the time XL even signed them. That's why a lot of labels were excited about the band. Vampire Weekend not only had a great sound, but was also a super cost-effective business decision. I believe there's a reference to Vampire Weekend's beginnings as a band in this song, Everlasting Arms. The line goes, trapped beneath a chandelier that's going down. And the cover of their first album was a photograph of a crooked chandelier. A lot of expectations and assumptions were made about Vampire Weekend that stuck with them all throughout their career up to modern vampires. I wonder if this song explores the fear that those assumptions won't ever be rectified, regardless of how the band evolves. I think another reason that I really love Vampire Weekend is I have probably discovered more music that I love through Vampire Weekend than any other band. Just because of, of what I was talking about, of the references they make in their songs, of the kind of drum beats that they'll they'll sample or interpolate, of the kind of bands that, that Ezra is always re you know referencing on, on Time Crisis. I've certainly kind of like come across more music that I never would have come across just through kind of trying to understand their pers the perspective that they were writing a song from and like to me if you if you like if you share kind of like common references it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that I ultimately like the output of their music too. Yeah, I was um, going to say you said the same thing about LCD sound system. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of those things cuz he does make a lot of references to to other music and like underground stuff and um yeah, I I I definitely see a lot of similarities. I think that's like in general like a hip hop influence 
far and away. I mean, I think if you, one of the things that, that Ezra talks about all the time is like how the, what he talks about this like thesis that like hip hop artists are just like naturally better at like expressing themselves because of, you know, one, the amount of emotion that is like typically displayed in hip hop, but also just the amount of music that someone who wants to be a successful hip hop artist has to kind of parse through and understand to kind of like chart their own path in that genre. Like a lot of times DJs, MCs are, are like some of like the biggest music dorks there are. You can learn so many good kind of musical references and so much good music like through accomplished hip hop artists. And I think like that's something that, that Ezra Canning channels like a lot for sure. And why not? Should she have averted her eyes and just stared at the laminated posts of the Dome of the Rock? Remembrances of holy days in Tarrytown and Rock. I don't want to move like this, but I don't want to die. That one also has like funny references to like super obscure. There's like a reference to a Nick Cave song with like your red right hand there. Like it's a very that it's super tightly bound. It's like so tightly bound that you there's so many different interpretations of it. That that one I can't quite put my finger on. Like th this is one of the songs that depending on like my mood, I don't know exactly what want to feel about it. I mean I think the foreign soil and foreign land, like that could be could almost be kind of like a reference to like the is like Judaism, you know, like the travel, you know, like the roving tribes of Israel and things like that. Like he does spend a lot of time examining that, like the differences between the relationship between Judaism and Christianity and like Judaism and God and Christianity and God. Like these are all, I guess like I just appreciate the fact that these are things that are very explicitly like try like taken head on and in, in what is essentially like an indie pop album. I don't particularly relate to the religious aspects of the of the band, but I do absolutely love that those are things that, that they are like trying to tackle. Next up is Yahey, which feels kind of like a confrontation with God, asking him how he could unconditionally love the people who deny his existence. Not your typical pop song fodder, but Vampire Weekend pulls it off. To me, the title is either a play on the reverse title of one of the most popular songs in recent history, or a play on the word Yahweh. Maybe both. Oh, sweet thing. 
religious overtones feel like a curiosity a little bit. I don't think he's, he's not, you know, he's not chastising people for it. I don't think sure. he's, I don't think he's like against it, but it feels like he is singing about it in hopes that he will one day like understand mm -hmm. what the people who do worship God understand or like in their, be in their shoes somehow in, in another, in another way. I think that is, I think you kind of nailed it. Like it's more of a, it's more of like one as like a, like a reference point for people to kind of like think more deeply about whatever he's kind of the larger ideas that he's talking about, but also like more as like an exploration than anything. I also think that there is a, one of the things that he's definitely doing is, you know, he's like a total like music nerd and like a traditionalist. And I think that you can't really think about American music, especially like kind of American rock and roll without thinking about the like heavy influence that American Christianity has had on, on popular music. And I think that that it, in some senses, it's also just, it's a cultural reference. Um, kind of the idea of like singing about religion, singing about themes from the Bible are also, that's a classic theme, even in, even in like the Grateful Dead, for instance, or, you know, th those guys were not particularly religious, but I think there is like some kind of nod to Americana with all of that. this is another one that has like insanely deep cultural i mean insanely deep like kind of like liter you know literary references that i have you know really hard time parsing um <laughs> Although I do really like the, I do love the the opening line about the victims. I mean, the water took its victim's name. Another, and I also reference this a lot as as I live in New York and I'm often looking for apartments. The the line that all apartments are pre-war is is another because anyone who's ever looked for an apartment in New York knows that pre-war is a kind of selling a selling point for kind of like classic or, or apartments with character. I didn't know that. The, the re, you know, like it has kind of like pre-war finishings, meaning it was, it's, you know, look, it's got like kind of like the cast iron look to it, the outside of it. But mm. the idea that all apartments are pre-war is like a very funny, like that's a very Ezraism. Over <laughs> 
Young Lion is like kind of a funny one because this is a song that's like very much like a Rostam, a Rostam song. Like he actually performs the song live, but it is, it's the last song on the album and like, you know, effectively his last song as a member of Vampire Weekend. Very unusual song, but the, the story behind that one is like really, really funny. I guess they were, Ezra and Rostam were like at a coffee shop and there was like a Rasta guy and they, he said, you take your time, Young Lion, to them. And that was the, uh, they just reused that line in the song. Like, even the idea of, like, you take your time could be interpreted a couple of different ways. Like, you take your time as in, take your time, you have the whole, your whole world in front of you. But also it's like, you take your time as in the sense of, you know, you, you monopolize the time that you have and you, you know, like, you don't share it with others or you don't, you know, mm. you don't give away, you don't give away your time as like kind of accusatory. I think there's a couple, there's like, like, like everything on this album and they're like everything in this band, there are multiple ways to look at it. Modern Vampires of the City topped critics' list and Billboard album charts, and won the Grammy for Best Alternative Music Album in 2014. The band toured the world to support the album, then ended up taking a nice long break before their next album. They'd all been performing and touring for most of their 20s, so they were all ready for the break. Chris Bayo moved to London and released multiple solo albums and EPs, including The Names in 2015 and Man of the World in 2017. Drummer Chris Thompson released his first solo record in 2017 called Youngish American. The album features all instrumentals by Thompson, who renames the project Dams of the West, and was produced by the Black Keys' Patrick Carney. He and Chris Bayo also have a podcast on the Ringer Network called The Road Taken, which takes a look at the life of a touring musician. Ezra Koenig, meanwhile, found himself a little unsure of what to do next. He didn't want to force another album, so he found a different creative path, anime. He created Neo Yokio, an anime series directed by Japanese anime veterans Kazuhiro Furuhashi and Junji Nishimura. 
The voiceover cast is pretty eclectic. Jaden Smith plays the main character, Susan Sarandon as Aunt Agatha, and Jude Law as the robot butler. It's a satire combined with science fiction combined with really cool-looking anime, which I really thought I'd like, but it kind of fell short for me. But you can watch it all on Netflix if you're interested in checking it out. Kazcon, we need to discuss the matter of national security. We've seen a dramatic rise in occult activity. You have a sacred duty to protect the city as well as our family name. I told you to clear my schedule. I'm grieving the death of a relationship. Oh dear. Don't you understand? You need to work to support your wretched lifestyle. Koenig also has an internet radio show and podcast called Time Crisis with Ezra Koenig, which he co-hosts with Jake Longstreth. How much of his, his work outside of Vampire Weekend do you like to follow? All of it. <laughs> I, I, I listen to, I've listened to every episode of Time Crisis. Some okay. of, a lot of them multiple times. There are like, a lot. I just, yeah. Well, I've been, I just have been, I've been a fan for a while. And so I like, I've just been, I also found, I don't know. I've also found like speaking of the fan community. So the podcast, it's a radio show is on Apple music, but one of the guys from the, like the vampire weekend fan community just posts the, you can just download them like a regular podcast. And so I, you know, I don't have to pay to listen to them, which is a big, big factor. I mean, I really started listening to Time Crisis as as kind of like a general curiosity about like what because I found their music like so relatable, but I didn't I couldn't quite put my finger on why. I started listening to Time Crisis basically as a way to like see if I could kind of glean some more understanding about like what what he was trying to say. And to be honest, like I really haven't. <laughs> I haven't really <laughs> he did he he doesn't talk about his music his his own music very much. He talks about his you know musical references and what he likes and like his kind of like broader perspective on themes, but he doesn't really speak specifically about, you know, this is what I was trying to say with this song. He, you know, he does say a lot, like, I think I know what this person was trying to say, but like, you can think about it all the time. And people write into the, the shows like, Oh, this reminds me of this song. And he he'll say like, yeah, like, sure. Like if that's how you would saw it, then yes, that is correct. <laughs> um, the Neo Yokio, his anime show is like, he kind of like fell into the same trappings with that or like I think there was some like critique of it where people were like what are you trying to do with this and it's like dude it's a it's a like we are trying to be funny this is a joke like, this is a, like what like they took it very seriously but like we are trying to I guess the criticism was basically if they if they were doing this on purpose then it would be funny but they're not they're trying to be serious when it when it came to like making a an anime with Jada Smith, Jaden Smith as the main character. It felt like almost like a like satire about the yeah. elite youth kind of thing, which it, which it absolutely was. Yeah, was like, so yeah. that's what I was kind of getting from it, but I didn't stick around very long. <laughs> <laughs> Have you spent much time with Time Crisis? I've listened to a couple of the episodes, yeah. Um, but yeah, I haven't spent I, I I haven't spent as much time with it quite yet as I as I need it's, to. It's a it's a really funny show. So like the, his co-host is this guy, Jake Longstreth, who is the older brother of Dave Longstreth, who is Dirty Projectors. And Dave Long, Jake Longstreth is like really the guy who kind of like got him, got Ezra into The Grateful Dead. And so like over the history of the show, you can basically hear, so Time Crisis started in like very, very soon after this album came out. And over the history of the show, you can kind of like hear Ezra basically 
having like a general knowledge for kind of like jam music and and having like just a broader interest in in that sort of thing you can kind of like hear him getting more interested in it and and getting like deeper and deeper in like what these people were trying to say and like why they were pursuing this type of music yeah and then finally like they release this album and you're like oh shit he like really got into it um <laughs> in a good way and it's yeah, it's yeah. just like a very it's been really funny to like have this in the background and it's just like a very funny irreverent show it's like kind of the perfect show to just like listen to in the background Rostam Batmanglij announced his departure from Vampire Weekend in 2016 on good terms with the band to pursue projects of his own. Besides consistently putting out solo music on his own, he's built up quite a resume over the last few years as a writer, producer, and musician. He's worked with Claro, Carly Rae Jepsen, Ra Ra Riot, Santa Gold, Frank Ocean, Maggie Rogers, and recently produced the new Hyam album alongside Danielle Hyam and Ariel Rekscheid. He also collaborated with Hamilton Lighthouser from The Walkman. After Rostam's announcement, Vampire Weekend got back in the studio to begin recording songs for their next album, Father of the Bride. Recording wrapped in 2018, and the album released on May 3rd, 2019. I believe that New Year's Eve will be the perfect time for their great surrender, but they don't remember. Anger wants a voice, voices want to sing. Vampire Weekend Orbit and contributed to some songs on Father of the Bride. In fact, there are a lot of collaborators, more so than any other moment in Vampire Weekend history. With Father of the Bride, Vampire Weekend feels less like a band and more like a project, which usually results in some really interesting directions. Collaborators on the album include Steve Lacey, Mark Ronson, Dave Longstreth from Journey Projectors and his brother and Time Crisis co-host Jake Longstreth, vocals from Daniel Hyam, and more. It's just the kind of collage Koenig is going for in his lyrics, but personified. He says he was inspired by Kanye West to incorporate more collaborations, and lyrically he was very influenced by Casey Musgraves. Father of the Bride won Best Alternative Music Album at the 2020 Grammys and was nominated for Album of the Year, losing to Billie Eilish. Sunflower in the morning Standing in the garden, I'll be for you, wait. 
they essentially have a guy who now publishes all of their as many of their live shows as he can find like they have they're like is this the, the future of vampire weekend like a jam band like what's going on here but like i'll send you the link the guy's name is suck a dog dick um <laughs> and which is like a reference to like dick's picks which is like obviously yeah. the grateful dead um, yeah. but essentially he posts all their posts all their live shows and um and now that they're kind of like switching up their live performances so often that like there's like something to that um and it's mm-hmm. like it's pretty funny these days like there is no version of that like there you know the the fish like fish group is like still doing their fish thing and like massive respect to them but they're not bringing on like a ton of younger people who are who are I mean maybe they are I am a fish fan who listens to live recordings so I I probably shouldn't uh, shouldn't close people off um I don't know I guess I guess what I'm the the thing I'm referencing I went to a show this year I've been to I've been to I went well I haven't been to any shows this year and no one has which really sucks but I did go to I did go to Vampire Weekend show last year, and it was funny to hear people in the crowd or after the show like talk about how they would like extend songs that were a minute or two, you know, minute or two on the album into twelve or fifteen minute songs. And there's this kind of like meme in the in the Vampire Weekend community of the eight minute Cape Cod, which Cape Cod Gloss Gloss is from their first album, and it's like just like a burst of like sky energy it's not meant to be like jammed out but the meme is that basically vampire weekend is a jam band now so they're gonna be playing eight minute versions of all of these songs <laughs> it's funny to think of vampire weekend as the people bringing new fans into like the jam community and like give under, like give them jam sensibilities um because yeah, i don't think it? it's yeah i mean certainly not me which is it's no. it's <laughs> I, something I've been very, I've been really excited about. It's probably my favorite thing that happened in 2019 was Vampire Weekend becoming a jam band. think spending more time kind of like digging into bands like the Grateful Dead has given him has let him understand that you can essentially like build something completely different with a live performance and so they've clearly like oriented the band to investing in that experience for people and um, investing like their kind of artistic sensibilities to that as well and so they've replaced Rostam with with four or five um, people and it just gives them so much more flexibility and so much more, you know, they play their, the, the number of songs they play, like the covers and things are, the list is like growing kind of exponentially. Songs that are seemingly like really short on an album actually like end up being like fitting really well into like kind of a jam. There's, I was, I've been pleasantly surprised seeing them perform live recently. Do they have two drummers? They do have two drummers. There you go. Yeah, which is all you need. <laughs>
how has the sentiment changed? Has it has it improved? Has it stayed the same? Of Vampire Weekend toward um, like in the eyes of music critics. It's super interesting. I, there was a really when they this most recent album came out the the New York Times podcast about it was was really interesting because like it was more so it was more about the the media narrative around Vampire Weekend than it was about the actual album. And I think like the reality is ever since their first their first album they basically blew up so much quicker than any indie indie band could ever hope for like could ever really aspire to they basically went from Ezra Koenig was like a English teacher in Brooklyn and then they were like performing at Glastonbury like less than like less than six months later like you there it was like such a meteoric rise that they were kind of bound for very very kind of uh, harsh critiques from the like blogosphere a lot of that was around kind of this like cultural appropriation piece which was half-baked at best in terms of like they were essentially accusing a Jewish guy from New Jersey of like being New England wasp and and stealing music from Ethiopians or something and uh, like it just never really it was always half-baked and I think that I think of this album very much so as basically putting a like nice tidy bow on how so like how silly that was in the first place these days they're definitely like music you know darlings of the kind of like music critique like they kind of they're kind of like just highbrow enough that they pique the interest of of all of, of like music media but then they have enough pop sensibilities that people can feel like they'll write about them and they're popular enough that you know they kind of get that that like buzz from new album cycles i mean they're, they're very much despite being in you know having roots in indie kind of guitar music they are still like a major label band it is funny like they are like the one of the more if you think about like 2019 they're one of the more relevant bands that like released an album of like with guitars, which is kind of funny to think about. And like, I don't really care about, I don't really care about that, but it is funny to like think about that sort of thing in the broader context of music right now. As for what Vampire Weekend has been up to since last year, not much in the way of touring. Obviously COVID has had quite an impact on the music industry, Vampire Weekend included. The second leg of their Father of the Bride tour was canceled this spring, but they did just put out the Live in Florida EP of all songs from shows in Miami and St. Augustine. Koenig has also said he's working on a new Vampire Weekend album to be released in 2021. He's also dad to an almost two-year-old, Isaiah Jones Koenig, with his girlfriend and partner, actress Rashida Jones. Seems as good a time as any to hang out at home with the family, relax, and write new music. Thank you so much for joining me again today. As always, follow me over at Radio Gaga Podcast on Instagram and let me know what you want to hear next. Also, leave me a rating and review wherever you listen and send the Radio Gaga Podcast to a music fan in your life. You should learn how to say no!
next episode, I am so very excited to welcome another friend of mine to the pod, music journalist Phoebe Riley, to discuss Hole and their second studio album, Live Through This. Phoebe has spent a significant amount of time with Courtney Love, having written a cover story on her for Spin Magazine, and she's been a Hole fan for a really long time. She shares some Courtney memories and her thoughts on the music, and she was just so much fun to talk to. Give Live Through This a listen, and I'll see you back here next time. Violent move.